0: Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 77, Zack Snyder's Justice League, Official Trailer, Here for a Reason. I have so many
1: questions. Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind. Then
2: I'll ask the obvious question.
3: Start asking questions. You're the answer, son.
0: Welcome to Mosaic, I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love The Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode breaks down the 2.14 trailer. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. Okay, my friends, we've got less than a month to go, so let's do this. With Monday off, I've had the fortune to record sooner than later, so I'll just go over my experience, comment on the trailer's effectiveness, do a rundown, and then I'll move any tangents into the endnotes for the interested. For future context, despite an official countdown to trailer release, unsanctioned leaks led to a rollout about two hours early. I just happened to get online mere minutes before it was officially published, and no one in my feed was passing around but on that note, be careful to avoid malicious material in March. But anyways, if there's a one-word takeaway from my experience, it is relief. (laughs) The other trailers got me excited, but this one made me feel like I could finally breathe. The serious tone continues that sense of gravity and intention of showing something epic in scope and weighty in meaning, something true to itself with integrity, and it feels like a continuation of everything I've loved until now, not just selling some entertaining diversion to pass some time, even if that's how many people will view and experience it, which is fine, but instead this trailer is an assurance that it is what it was meant to be, and more. And I think my jaw was left just a little hanging with all the new footage, new lines, the clarity and cohesion of vision, and the final realization that it's actually happening. In my mind, I knew that, of course, but the scope of investment, polish, and ultimately publication has finally put my heart at ease that it would be In the intersection of the Boy Scout and the Bat is that maxim, always be prepared, parenthetically for the worst. And there have been other cases of unsettling cancellations, unexpected endings, and unfulfilled promises. But with this, somehow I finally feel the certainty of release, catching up and connecting with my cognition. So that sense of relief and satisfaction was my main reaction. And while many of this is familiar for those of us invested in the Snyder Cut saga, this has to be my favorite trailer in terms of analysis, which is my favorite mode of engagement and what I'm excited to do.
1: For me, it's interesting because when I get an opportunity to, t- to discuss the work, you know, what was intended or what we were trying to do. And it's always an honor for me because when you make it, you know, you're so insulated and so kind of singular. And you forget that it's going to go out into the world and people are going to watch it and it's going to want to talk about it. Or, what are the ideas? What did you mean? All these things. It's always an honor and also fun to see it come back at me and have to kind of live it again and talk about it. It's, it's, it it allows me to kind of go back to the why of everything. It's fun. And thank you an honor that you, know, you guys enjoy the films.
4: A lot of the work we have done is polarizing. And I think that's okay because people want to talk about it. People feel very strongly about it. If it gets conversation started, the movies that I like the most, even the movies that sometimes make me feel uncomfortable, or the movies that we talk about or you know, I didn't see it that way. I thought it was that. That's what I love about movies. I love being able to discuss them. And mm. I like when someone has a different point of view on it or a different take or saw something that I didn't see. And I love that dialogue. I do really love movies. I love watching them. I love being transported to a different place. But I think my favorite thing is being able to discuss it and and have it mean something.
0: There is so much here. I don't know where to start.
4: God, I don't even know what to say. There, I, there's so many things I want to say, mm. but... <laughs>
0: well, let's look at effectiveness. Whereas the Hallelujah trailer was more of an abstract piece of art for the fans, this trailer is just about as clear as can be for casuals and wider audiences. It answers the who, what, when, where, and why elegantly and directly. In two minutes, the premise of the plot is completely communicated. Steppenwolf is the bad guy coming to subjugate the Earth now that Superman's dead. Batman builds an alliance to defend against that threat. We'll get into the story telling of the trailer more in the breakdown, but basically the dialogue and the visuals are almost Mickey Mousing directly meta metatextually, why should you watch this if you saw that other one or heard that it was bad? Well, this trailer provides all new footage and a broader scope, a completely different look, style, and tone. It features all your classic characters, and it absolutely will be an event. And if you happen to have seen Man of Steel and BVS, the familiar lines and sense of continuity shows that this is a story leaning into lore, not running from it.
4: In the experience of watching the film, if you don't get to see that journey or see that arc. I don't think it's as fulfilling. That's what I'm most excited about is that you really get to spend time with them and you really, so like at the end where we've left them, you feel like they've come around and this journey isn't just in this movie. The journey started with Man of Steel, the deconstructive nature of BVS that people were like, well, wait a minute, that's not my Batman or my Superman. (laughs) I was hoping that the audience would be a little bit more patient because we were to get there. And I think this movie, you get there, you see them at their pinnacle. It's the hero's journey, yeah. but you have to start from somewhere to get to where you want to be. Otherwise, I just like, I don't know what the story is.
0: Showing that there was a plan, a design, and an intended arc means that investing hours into DC films is meaningful and might mean more down the road. For people desperate to find something else to stream, that next thing to binge, another pillar of pop culture to connect with some sense of common experience, when we've got less of that these days, this is it. The length, when conceived as a film, is admittedly intimidating to the average person, but that's purely a trick of the mind when compared to our actual empirical viewing habits.
2: With the entire nation hunkered down at home, it seems that people have decided to gather around the television set. On average, TV viewing is up more than eight hours per day. TV viewership is way up. The average household is watching a whopping 66 hours of TV a week. That's over eight hours a day. Streaming services are seeing an uptick too. 74% of American homes are now subscribed to a service.
0: With the production value on display, isn't this worth some of that watch time? This trailer shows a feast for the senses and promises a deep dive into the league. When would you ever get this much big-budget attention to all these characters together? In almost any other setting, their appearances would have been relegated to practically cameos.
4: It's really nice to see it this way, to see the intention and some of the nuances. And actually, in a way, I think it's the best case scenario because one of the things we get is we get to spend time with each of these characters And we get to see their arcs being fully fulfilled. And they all have complicated stories and backstories. We are living in the streaming world. We get this opportunity to explore these characters in a way that we couldn't do if it was just a theatrical release. I think that's exciting.
0: Then there's the event aspect. As if there was any doubt about the tendency of the Snyder cut to trend, this trailer sealed the deal with its deft use of the We Live in a Society meme, which may warrant an entire episode on its own to unravel what it means in this moment, but it still works, played straight, even if the meme fades in the future, a little like SpongeBob at the Super Bowl two years too late. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, that just proves the point. <laughs> But if that fear of missing out motivates some to get in on the Snyder Cut thing, all the better. Another example of mimetic literacy is the fixation on 214, a figure first promoted by Snyder as the suggested length of his cut and adopted by much of the community, which is why it was emblazoned across Zack's temptation of Percival Post and why it appears in Snyder Stand usernames and why February 14 carries some significance to the community. This trailer acknowledges that community by releasing on that date and by being 2 minutes and 14 seconds long minus the end card. And so they're demonstrating social savvy in a way that many creators might struggle with. In a way, the grassroots nature of it all only lends to its credibility, intrigue, and effectiveness Maybe
4: I think the most important thing that a director has is their point of view. For a long time, that was really respected, and then there came a time where it became things made in a boardroom by committee. Of this is yes. what is going to be successful, and this is. And and I feel like now the audiences are savvy enough to figure out the difference. Like mm-hmm. they can tell once you're getting a sense of his style in whatever movie he's doing. Like that's the style of the movie. So if you're trying and do something that is radically different, I think audiences know, you know, they're aware of that, that rejection of like, this doesn't seem right. What maybe is resonating with audiences is is that it's a particular voice, a particular story
0: that's being told. Those shifts might come and go, but as a final argument for Zack Snyder's Justice League as an event, just consider the legacy of this, in and of itself, as intellectual property, as a curious case study, as a historical landmark as the first and only true Justice League film featuring heroes closing in on a century old, you could legitimately expect to one day watch this with your teenaged grandchildren as a classic. For anyone fascinated by filmmaking or how Hollywood works, Justice League is a must-see case study. For anyone into activism, accountability, and pioneering a new streaming frontier during a global pandemic, how could you not be curious? An impossible mix of the crown jewels of intellectual property, blockbuster budget, but freed from the constraints of focus groups, runtime restrictions, studio mandates, and even industry standard aspect ratios.
1: It's been a great experience with Justice League and the fandom and sort of renaissance I've experienced within the fandom and finding these like-minded fans. Because the films are populist films in a lot of ways, meant for a mass audience. But I've made them and it's I've and I've said this a million times, I've made them in a very boutique way, like it's a very small scale production. When I'm doing it the way I want, it's really just a very personal thing. It's not a boardroom kind of affair. And there's movies that are made in a boardroom, sort of corporate films, and they're very clean and they're very polished and they've been tested and tested and they give you exactly what you want at every moment. And that's just not a thing I'm interested in. Frankly, I just don't think it's the thing that people wanting to have an experience that's possibly different from the one that they expect want. And maybe part of the problem that I face is that the films don't necessarily do exactly what everybody wants at every moment. And so they challenge you a little bit. And that, that is what it is.
0: It's a remarkable confluence of events that may never come again. Isn't something that audacious, ambitious, and special worth your time and attention? (laughs) And I've gone off topic again, thinking of how I'm going to convince everyone I know to watch this from different angles of persuasion. So one last one then, an idea to engage people based on the exceptional length might be to make an event out of that itself. We have Super Bowl parties that stretch all night long. If this film or this saga is likened to a marathon, well, we do marathons for charity all the time, right? How about a movie marathon for a charity meaningful to all involved?
4: What's so amazing is is the sense of community that this Mm. fandom has. In this year, we've lost a lot of community. We've lost Mm. a lot of things. But this year was so important for the fan community because they really have rallied together in so many ways. Online forums in doing the work with AFSP, it's stronger than ever. In this particular year, that is an amazing thing. And I think when you've had something super tragic happen, Zach and I made a conscious effort to come forward because we thought if it could help anybody that that would be important as a public figure. That was a very difficult decision. But then to see all these people rally, it's just amazing. It's touching. And as much as there's a passion for bringing Justice League to the world, the fact that at the same time, there was something so good being done. It's just amazing. Amazing and incredible. And all of it's kind of unbelievable, really.
0: Okay, back to the trailer. Where was I? Effectiveness, right? I thought it was great at showing what it needed to show without showing too much. There are tons of things that we know about and expect, but which have been saved for our viewing experience. For example, Victor's emotional arc is spared our current callous analysis, which would rob it of its emotional effect in actual viewing. Surely Flash is still set to surprise and awe, and will probably guffaw at more of Alfred's dry wit. Not to mention all the things we haven't seen or imagined yet. So to sum it all up, yes, it was effective. Ha <laughs> ha. As of this recording, it is achieving record views and trending on social media. All that aside, let's get into that trailer. So the first thing that hits me is the soulful sound of Lisa Gerard's Celon. You may recognize her work from Lord of the Rings, or remember her song Elegy from the second Man of Steel trailer. That connection to Tolkien, to Man of Steel, made it an alternate ending to Mosaic episode 52 on Fantasy as a wordless dedication to Autumn. Here, the selection of the song carries no less meaning. Salon is a Tolkien reference, and the song was written days before Gerard gave birth to her daughter, tying mythology back to that whole cycle of life. To SF Weekly, she said, quote, There's this weird thing that takes place, thinking about procreation, sex, and death. You get very morbid just before you're about to have a baby. End quote. And so, backed by her song in the opening of our trailer, we have myth-making in action. The morbid death of the Superman. His body gripped by the claw of an abomination, his heart rent, his back arched in agony, and his death cry echoes across the land.
2: The bell's already been rung.
0: This is the death that precedes the birth of the superheroes, which propagates into a new age of heroes. We see waves emanating from Superman's mouth as we cut to black in Lex's last lines from BVS.
2: Out in the dark.
0: And as this trailer is one for one, it intends for Superman's death knell to be the bell that's rung among the stars.
2: Among the stars.
0: We see the wave sweep across the damaged parts of Gotham mere meters from more skyscrapers with lights, life, and inhabitants, confirming our conclusions in our Doomsday episodes that had our heroes not stopped the last pop of Doomsday's blast attack, the loss of life among Gotham's citizens would have been much higher. We see the wave seemingly go to the shores of Themyscira, perhaps to wake the artifact on that magic isle, and let's just pause to appreciate the fact that Themyscira immediately reads as such. The filmmakers wanted to build out this big universe. So the island in Justice League has those same verdant fields, the same sheer rock faces, natural arches, and we're returned to where we were in Wonder Woman. I'm sure if Aquaman had been further along in production, we might have seen a more consistent undersea world as well. Yet they still bothered to make it a story point that the storage site is an ancient Atlantean satellite, and so expect it to look somewhat different. So again, just think of all the care that went into all this world-building back then.
4: What's interesting for us is um, world-building. Whether it was with the DCU creating this world where these heroes exist, that could go on.
0: Well, Lex ends his chorus, referencing Superman's fall. The god is dead. And on cue, we see something like a temple or house of god fall into the sea. Now, consider the fact that Lex's lines aren't just normal dialogue, but practically poetry highlighting lines that would have been buried under quips and one-liners in another approach. The trailer and the film are respecting the nature of an epic mythological saga, where you might have things like the recitation of a course. Further, we begin with the end of BVS, with a scene and a line from BVS, emphasizing the continuity, the world building, the continuing story, the ongoing saga, respecting the weight of what came before for the building of what's to come. So in the first 30 seconds, we've set a mood, a tone, acknowledge the art form and the world being built, so again, I'll say it's effective and why it is so rewarding to analyze. Unquestionably, we all feel the visceral impact of such filmmaking, but in the analysis, we see how thoughtful, deliberate, intentional, and artful it all was.
4: We start to think about, well, who are we and what is it that we're doing? And in the quarry, it was a place where something can be built or made, and it felt very handmade as well.
0: I can't tell you how excited I am to once again have something to chew on. <laughs> Okay, our setting has been set, and after our logos, we go and move on to our motivations. It's a world without Superman, so what? Bruce answers our inquiry of the coming concern. I had a dream. And keeping with continuity, we return to the nightmare in BVS. Again, paying off our attention to the past the worlds built before, and proving that there's more. What little I remember of that earlier version didn't reprise, recall, or reference the Bat's far-flung future, and this trailer will do its best to be composed of nothing but shots and scenes not seen before in theaters. Bruce tells us of his dream, which we had glimpsed back in BVS, as we see Nightmare Batman in profile, armed and overdressed under an orange sky, and the skyline that was once Gotham is crumbling and oppressed by alien hellfire almost like a premonition bruce changes his nightmare to a prediction a premonition and as past his prologue we see diana examining ancient art recalling and foretelling an attack and let's just pause again to point out how faithfully our trinity has been cast into their roles so far superman has played the role of the dying savior Something not invented by the filmmakers, but absolutely cemented into pop culture by the landmark Death of Superman saga, and Batman stands in a hellscape pondering his premonition. So he's the demon, the scary one, the pragmatic utilitarian, willing to bend the rules to get the job done, even if that means a gun. But thematically, he's the paranoid one worried about a bad future, and accordingly he intends to prep. I mean, come on, how is that not Batman? Finally, we have Diana at the temple, summoned by a magic arrow, divining the truth as an ancient archaeologist. So she's the immortal Amazon from a time of myth and magic, tied to the past and uncovering the truth. Look! As fictional stories, you're free to construct them as you will, to convey a plot, contain a clever twist, startle or a surprise, or just string together a bunch of action set pieces. But even from these tiny snippets, we see them showcasing layers and layers of characters, themes, and literary devices, so that we're not just thoughtlessly moving from point A to point B, or just busy work that does one thing on the most shallow and superficial level
1: iconographic benchmarks that people would be able to link into as a way to help with a secondary storyline. That is to say that the images exist here, but the images that they evoke are deeper. And we endeavor carefully to that each image you can take a dive on and find its, whether it be cinematic reference or whether it be mythological or historical, we really try and support the movies in that way as much as possible.
0: If our Trinity is getting this treatment in two minutes of trailer, imagine what we're going to get with four hours. I can't believe it. Are you kidding me? I'm so excited. Now, again, don't take that for granted. There are countless ensembles stuffed with funny wise guys, like there's some sort of four-quadrant quota to fill, and that role can counter continuity, prior characterization, or even the comic mythos. Is that okay? Depending on your aim, of course. If you want to have a good time, you need those guys to yuck it up. But that doesn't mean that that's the only valid aim the only reason to find. And isn't it awesome that we got filmmakers who have the characters act as the comic ones would if they were real? Okay, I've got to ramble on some artifacts and hidden histories, but I'm going to move that to the end. Let's get back to the last part of Bruce's line. I think there's an attack coming. So like a procession in some infernal cathedral of the damned, we see Darkseid in all his unholy glory, flanked by Desaad and Granny Goodness, while legions of parademons bow their heads in deference. Even if you knew nothing about the comics or these characters, the visuals convey so much without words.
1: It's a motion picture, like the whole point is, it's an image that tells a story. That's the most important thing.
0: The hierarchy is immediately clear. His power to command legions shows a threat. The order of the proceedings and the ornate structures show that this is how he likes it. This is how he wants the world to be. And the columns of fire in the distance link this entity to the one seen in the nightmare. The designs of these characters just exude evil in a way that even the completely clueless will get. But just to make it explicit, to make it crystal clear for those who don't chew, we have Steppenwolf kneel and declare, my lord, to decide. And for all my demonic verbiage, let's just say that these scenes are immaculate in the area of visual effects. For completely generated scenes, they still look and feel more than real enough. It is an absolute miracle we get to see these realized to this level of quality and completion.
4: It's been such a labor of love for us, but not just for us. There's so many people, even in post, to make this possible. The running time is, I think, just about four hours. If you think about how much extra time that is, and then you think about how visual effects heavy these superhero films are. We had to do, in like six months, and and 50 some odd visual effects shots. Yeah. You know, there was just so many shots to do. The artists and the, first of all, a lot of them had worked on it originally and mm. they were heartbroken that their designs didn't get to be executed the way they wanted them to be. So for everybody, it was about setting things right and actually mm. doing what the original intention was. People just worked, I think, harder than I mean, I've ever seen them.
0: And I am filled with nothing but awe gratitude and respect for the people who turn dreams into reality. To all the artists and crew at Scanline, Weta, DNEG, Rodeo, and Crafty Apes, we thank you. Thank you for making this possible. Okay. My Lord, this so the villain finally gets his voice, and in a weird way, Steppenwolf is humanized for us. He isn't the top of the food chain. Darkseid is his boss's boss. He has to humble himself and bow. His words are said with deference, not defiance, and he's almost vulnerable in the close-up as his living armor pulls away, showing that magnificent organic texture of flesh and blood and bone, and his eyes are clear and shine, compared to the fire of Darkseid or the skull-like shadow sockets of Dasad, and I wouldn't be surprised if... Steppenwolf ends up as a dark horse to enter the pantheon of supervillains after Zack Snyder's Justice League. And this trailer starts to show off his supervillain chops as he promises to bring about the end of the world. And we see him completely overwhelm the Amazons. So step by step, the trailer is building the case. Steppenwolf is the threat. Now what? Well, Bruce breaks back in with his plan.
3: I need warriors. I'm building an alliance to defend ourselves
0: bruce needs warriors he's building an alliance to defend the world and we get a roll call of the candidates diana during the old bailey rescue aquaman underwater cyborg and flash batman blazing away in the batmobile we are showing the casual audience all the iconic characters the new and luscious visuals and lots and lots of action but if that's all it takes where's the tension alfred interjects with his doubts
4: how do you know your team's
0: strong enough the fact is bruce doesn't know if his team is strong enough that's the forest adventure. And in his endless repository of clever lines, Alfred references our Tuareen villain as the visuals reinforce. Steppenwolf charges, horns lowered. As Alfred says, If you can't bring down the charging bush, then don't wave the red cape at it. And then the trailer gives us our one for one with the hologram of Superman's red cape right in our faces. So Alfred's warning builds the tension, but also in the story of the trailer, it acts as a suggestion of resurrection. Plainly, if your team isn't strong enough to face Steppenwolf, then bring back the Superman. But you must overcome his death. So we're shown London's memorial to him and Lois looking up to the sky. We get a glimpse of the history lesson and the past we fear will repeat itself, as well as the threat to be handled by Superman. And as a picture of Pa Kent is in view, we hear his voice repeating his words from Man of Steel. You were sent here for a reason. So on that one-for-one level, Darkseid's defeat is Superman's reason. But on a deeper level, as the choir kicks in, And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself. Jonathan's words voice over all the heroes. Victor, Diana, Arthur, Barry, and Bruce. Finally, Lois at the farm and Superman is back in black, taking flight again. To find out what that reason is. So, a Superman-centric interpretation may be that he's here to protect the Earth and stop Darkseid. He's here to inspire these superheroes to begin their public careers in the light. He's here to be with his world, Lois. He's here to be Superman. Superman. The journey of discovery that began with Man of Steel and was tested in BVS has finally come to fruition with Justice League, the ultimate cinematic Superman story arc, the likes of which we've never seen before and may never see again. To show how we've come full circle, we've come back to the farm, we come back to the imagery of his first flight, because life and legend are cyclic, and even if this Superman's cycle has ended, Superman goes on and beyond. And the universality of that is why Superman's story is the template, the story of every superhero, and the hero's cycle is a story for us all. So Jonathan's words aren't just for Superman, they apply to the Justice League. To every hero, and to all of us, to find your reason can be a restatement of Joseph Campbell's exhortation to follow your bliss. So at this point, there's been a deluge of visual splendor, so let's just hit those last lines before the stinger.
3: He said the age of heroes would never come again. It will.
0: It has to. So again, Diana expresses doubt, sets the stakes, but Bruce expresses the hope. The lasting legacy of Superman has been branded upon his heart, that this world is worth fighting for and that you have to try against all odds.
4: I just wanted it so badly. I wanted to do it so badly. And I wasn't going to take no for an answer. That's always my advice to people too. You're going to have so many people telling you no or turning you down and you have to just keep going. And it's a tough business on so many levels. When you succeed, it's because you're, you just didn't accept the no's just push through and you have to be confident in that and in yourself.
1: I wouldn't change a frame of anything I've done. So.
0: And that's the cliffhanger to be resolved by the film. But these trailers are mini-movies. And so we get a little stinger at the end, but I'm going to pick up some of the highlights from that flood of shots. We see Victor Stone in Cyberspace. Something not in that other version, but something that I longed for. As a sci-fi fan, Cyborg's potential as an incorporeal technopath has always been more interesting to me than just another bruiser on the battlefield. I can't wait to see Flash in action more. The few glimpses that we've seen are gorgeous and intriguing. and after decades of Batmobiles being inspired by the Bat Tank, it's amazing to finally see it brought to life. And of course, we're going to get more of the history lesson and more in our action set pieces directed by Zack Snyder. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> I wonder if any of you get that reference. So, speaking of references, let's turn to the Stinger.
3: We live in a society.
0: Unquestionably, this line or scene was the biggest in involuntary reactions. And of course, there's something visceral about mere recognition, recalling the meme or the return of an icon. But I also think there's a subconscious awareness of the scope of this encounter. This film contains DC's biggest heroes and now dc's biggest villains luther Darkseid, and joker all grace this trailer joker is a household name and rounds out the roster of villains that might otherwise be monopolized by superman and it gives a sense of something larger
1: part of the reason why i really wanted to do the scene was because it was important to me that batman and joker have a scene together because batman and joker that conflict is central to the universe. And frankly, I thought it was important for fans to see their Batman and this cinematic universe's Joker come into some small conflict. Now they have a little bit of history.
0: Again and again, people have used the word epic for what's being conveyed, because this trailer takes us to Gotham, Metropolis, Apocalypse, Themyscira, and Atlantis. Under sea to outer space, back to the time of the gods, and to a post-apocalyptic future. Joker just shows that Snyder has been given the crown jewels, and he has chosen to respect Ayer's casting, Leto's performance, and he brings Suicide Squad into the fold. A film which abided by the world building is now a proper part of this world. Even as other approaches seem to chip away or try to contract it, this glimpse of Joker makes it feel like anyone could show up, and I'm sure we've got more surprises to come. So it's a cameo that makes it feel like a universe again.
1: There is a suggestion, of course, in the film, as there would be within any of these movies, of a larger universe that's still out there.
0: And as a meta matter, it is nice to see a little justice for Leto's Joker and David Ayer.
1: I was just sort of curious how it felt to be able to sort of slide back into Mr. J one more time.
0: Well, Zack Snyder is a warrior. He's a
1: madman. I really love him. With every character I play, I work so intently and tend to dig really deep and put a lot of time and energy into it. But when I'm done playing the part, I do miss them a little bit. And you do all this work anyway. It's kind of nice to go back and play that part again. You know, you do all this work and then you're done. It's nice to revisit things. Parts like the Joker, yeah, they can be intense and dark, but there's a lot of freedom and abandon there. And that's really fun for me. It's fun for
0: the other actors. It's fun for the crew. Okay, let's talk about the look and then the lines. So Joker looks like he's been through 2020. <laughs> gone is the jewelry, the slick suits, the tightly coiffed hair, and instead his clothes are plain, baggy, and unkept. His adornments gone, replaced by utilitarian gear and the wild long locks of green hair, frame a face smeared with messy makeup, and accented by assorted scars. It feels a little like Joker's been turned inside out. In Suicide Squad, he had an explosive personality neatly wrapped up in a David Bowie bow tie. But here, he feels like he's tightly wound up inside as he's let his looks run rampant. His performance feels completely different. World-weary, subdued, but still so dangerous. His lines come out like a heavy sigh. And that absolutely makes sense. The Joker and Suicide Squad liked the world as it was. He enjoyed fast cars, nightclubs, custom clothes, and a civilized world full of stuff. Imagine how much of a bummer it's gotta be to go from the King of Gotham to scraping by in the apocalypse. So I buy it, I totally buy it, but I'm gonna keep saying this, the Leto keeps coming closest to causing me clarophobia. <laughs> now again, let's not take the visual storytelling in this scene for granted. As it opens, we see the silhouette of an assault weapon sweep from the left side of the frame in the foreground. As Joker sits with his back to that person, a sidearm in its holster, and an AR in his lap, he's kitted out in a SWAT vest, which might be a nod to Ayer's writing role on that film when we're shown Batman proper. And gosh, isn't it great to see Ben back as the Bat? We see Cyborg out of focus in the background, indicating that he's made it through the apocalypse as well. But what I want to point out is nowhere does it say that these two are working together, or these two are on speaking terms. No, instead that is wordlessly conveyed through the visuals. The man with the gun isn't startled to see another man sitting on the hood of a car with a rifle in his lap. Batman isn't suddenly bringing to bear his gun to shoot Joker in the back. Joker sits relaxed, slightly slouched, as he addresses Batman without even turning to look at him. These are all small, wordless things, but they add up as the art of performance, direction, and filmmaking. To tell the story that this is the way that the world is now, that these two are at ease with one another to a certain extent, and that is such a smart stinger because we want to know what leads to bats and clowns living together. If the enemy of my enemy is my friend, just how bad does that enemy have to be and things have to get to align yourself with the joker it's the kind of thing that inspires entire imaginary worlds until you finally get to see the film okay so the lines
3: we live in a society where honor is a distant memory
0: isn't that right batman And so I've gone round and round debating whether to walk through this meme for posterity, but I'm gonna just skip it for now except to say that Snyder has this kind of knack for making cinematic Rorschach tests, which result in radically divergent readings that run from insight to outrage. And I think the coalition of Snyder Cut supporters of every cause and creed, us united, gives the appreciative side the better of that, but the degrees of irony and sincerity for many memes can lead to equally opposite misreadings, which for now, is just a distraction that I'm going to sidestep.
4: To me, it was surprising that they took the message that we were trying to make a commentary on was the message that they actually thought was what we were doing in the movie, which I thought was interesting.
0: Instead, if we take the line as is, it's already incredibly ironic and interesting in and of itself without the meme. First, you have the fact that Joker is calling the crumbling remnants of a post-apocalyptic collective a society. Second, you have the fact that Joker, as an antisocial psychopathic criminal, is invoking society and honor. Third, is that Joker is doing that to Batman, to his face, with his name, and implying some kind of responsibility on Batman's part for the state of their so called society and lack of honor. And lastly, we know how one of the nightmares ends in Batman's betrayal by one of his men. Did you get it? The rock? Yeah, we got it. I'm sorry. So, someone's lack of honor leading to the downfall of this society being turned over to and executed by Tyrant Superman. As Batman betrays himself in a myriad of ways, can he really complain if he gets betrayed by others? I suppose not if in the society he supports, honor is a distant memory. Perhaps another irony is while the nightmare is post-apocalyptic, it weirdly represents an odd sort of hope. It's an abject lesson that we are the product of our choices, circumstances, and situations that nothing is impossible that there exists a world where the Joker who killed Robin might fight alongside Batman and be of use. And it shows how valid and valuable the choices Batman ordinarily makes to avoid this kind of fate are in the ordinary timeline. It's not the case that Superman and Batman are just intrinsically good, morally right, and always infallible. Instead, it's a combination of fortune, favor, or fate, some might say your catastrophe, but also daily decisions and continual choices that prevent them from turning into tyrants, or betrayers. We fight, we kill,
3: we betray one another.
0: Exercising their agency and free will to enact their reason for being, to be who they are and want to be. Not to just go where their unconscious may take them, where society expects them, where conformity constrains them, where unresolved issues, fears, and feelings drive them, and so on. Given the freedom to find your reason, you owe it to yourself to try, even if it takes the rest of your life.
1: I just hope that anyone who is feels trapped or frustrated by the world in general. We all have like a magic spark and you need to just find the thing that makes you inspires you and gets you excited and pursue it as hard as you can, find your passion in the world because that's a great motivator.
0: Your reason need not be arrived at through reason, making it rational, calculated, or completely understood. Some of the best reasons in the world are the most mysterious, inexplicable, and unarticulated, like parenthood art, sacrifice, and love.
1: It's pretty intuitive. I don't try and intellectualize it too much. I just kind of go with my gut. You know, when I see something I like, I definitely go with that reaction and I don't try to intellectualize it too much.
0: But neither does it demand that it be nothing but passion and emotions unbridled by the mind. Instead, let's call it the pursuit of being present, actively participating in your life and the pursuit of your reason, your grail, your bliss, Not just going through the motions and letting the short life slip by. Yes, you'll stumble and fall. But as you live out your reason, they'll join you in the sun. So many find inspiration and solace in these films because the filmmakers have been doing and demonstrating exactly that. Constantly chasing the why without quarter or compromise. Accomplishing wonders. (laughs) Okay. I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. my friends my friends we have one month to go uh so i'm recording this short little intro to acknowledge the injection of some interview clips of zach and deborah snyder from uh I Men, The Lightcast, and Snyder Cut BR, which I happened to hear after my pre-recorded reactions, and which contained parallel answers, which just seemed too perfect to leave out. But they run without introduction, so thank you for your understanding. And to find the full interviews, which I suggest you check out, I've put links in the show notes. And now I return you to your previously scheduled episode. <laughs> You're the answer, son we should count our lucky stars. We didn't have to wait a quarter century like the Donner cut did. And that was even Zach's original guess for when his film would finally see the light of day.
4: No, I didn't think any of this was possible. I think, yeah. you know, this journey has been so emotional because it's been, you know, like a roller coaster ride.
0: So I got a few sort of tangents that I cut out and moved to the end here. Uh, we've got an obligatory comment on bulls and red capes. Um Batman's alliance with warriors, working out Superman's visual death cry, how the sci-fi in JL can be traced back to Man of Steel. Um, some commentary on the black suit, and uh, any other bits and bobs that I'll append here to the end. Um, Let's just get started. So the comment on the bulls and the red capes comes by my inability to suppress sharing this little bit of trivia, and that's, of course, that it's a myth that bulls are at all angered specifically by the color red. Additionally, the common rebuttal that uh, bulls are colorblind is itself also a myth. (laughs) So here uh, we've got the Mythbusters speaking with Professor Janet Andrews.
1: Our findings do not show that red does anything magical.
2: They seem to go towards movement rather than actually for the color red. Why is that? Are they colorblind? Well, it's a common misconception that they are colorblind, but in fact, they're not. In the last 10 years, people have looked at animals with hooves and found out that they're what's called dichromates. They can see two main color types. Humans are trichromates. We can see the rainbow and all the colors in between
0: so bulls can see red but there is
1: no scientific evidence to prove that makes them any more enraged than any other color
2: absolutely there is no scientific evidence to support that
0: Okay, so that out of my system. It actually ties nicely into another idea, which might be something interesting to explore, and that's Batman's history of theatricality. Batman has always been a little extra, right? Uh, His approach to culling criminals isn't a utilitarian optimization problem. Instead, he exercises his fury through his fists and intends to put this otherworldly fear into this cowardly lot. So theatricality is embedded in his crime-fighting style. Like a bullfight, it isn't about putting down the bull quickly or cleanly, but something with more emotion and spectacle and cruelty. Even in his so-called war with Superman, it went that way, closer to a bullfight than an extermination. And yet the nightmare shows us the ugliness of an entirely utilitarian Batman, armed with firearms and aligned with evildoers, etc. So it'll be interesting to see how Batman balances the tension between war and honor, efficiency and theater, against Steppenwolf, an existential threat to the planet. He frames his alliance as assembling warriors, but he has in mind something more than mercenaries, pipe hitters, or soldiers. Not just the ordinary knight, but the knight of the round table. As his reply to Diana suggests, he's looking for heroes, people who aren't just about the work, but the larger statement to society, and perhaps to put an otherworldly fear into a force across the cosmos as well. (laughs) So, speaking of communicating across the cosmos, let's talk about Superman's visible death cry, and we can analyze it under science, superpowers, special effects, and as a symbol. So, I'm sorry to say that under a standard scientific lens, seeing a visual death cry just doesn't work. If it had exhibited more as a dome instead of rings, you'd be closer, but ultimately sound doesn't work that way. And that's to say that if this is simply a matter of Superman making a very loud shout, there's no standard scientific justification for the rings looking and moving like they do, constrained on a plane and moving slower than the speed of sound. There are many reasons for that, which we explored in Mosaic episode 49, all about the breath powers. The underlying issue is that while superpowers may act like a magic black box, concealing their operation from us. The anatomy and mechanics of breath and the physics of air and sound are all known to us and transparently outside the black box. Now that said, could we conceive of a superpower to put it back into the black box? Sure, maybe. One clumsy way to do that might be as an extension of his force field powers. If his personal force field creates and constrains the rings, then they could look and act as they do. And incidentally, this is one way you could also brute force the freeze breath powers. But the solution is completely Inelegant, because while you get to your intended result, freeze breath and sonic rings, it also implicates such specific and powerful molecular level telekinesis that it becomes a little silly to limit oneself to these particular effects. Well, another way to do it would just be to create an entirely separate mysterious power for this, something that just inexplicably works. Like, say, the canary cry, and there's a precedent for this with Superman and sound. Way back in episode 3, we noted Superman's abnormal relationship to sound, typically described as superhearing, but which I like to call auditory omniscience, because super-hearing is often understood as simply a super-sensitive microphone. But in practice, it presents much more like the ability to hear a sound as if you were there, regardless of the ordinary speed or strength of the sound wave. For example, a gunshot that couldn't possibly propagate around the globe at all, much less in time to be relevant, nonetheless Superman is somehow aware early enough to meaningfully react. The prior films are careful to write around this, never explicitly Showing it, but strongly implying it. Nonetheless, if Superman has some sort of magical arbitrary connection to the detection of sound waves, it's not a bridge too far to apply that same kind of magic to the projection of sound waves. Maybe. So far, we've been conducting our analysis under a rigorous, literal lens. This is a diegetic mode of analysis that longtime listeners will be familiar with. But if you're new to the show, this means approaching the film as literal, as those within the world itself would perceive. A classic example of the difference might be a tale of two songs in Man of Steel. In the Cassidy Roadhouse scene, Alison Crowe performs her cover of Ring of Fire. This is what we call source music. Her performance of a song popularized by Johnny Cash is a part of the fictional setting and heard by the characters within it. Now, let's contrast that with Chris Cornell's performance of Seasons when Clark emerges shirtless from the ocean after the oil rig rescue. This soundtrack or in other cases, score, is purely perceived by the audience and not by the fictional world. Now, while these illustrations are auditory, are there perhaps similar examples in the realm of visual effects? And I think that there are, and that their goals are ostensibly the same as in the realm of sound, which is to prioritize the communication of something to the audience over a revelation of the reality of the world. So in that realm, you might consider all the props and fantasy user interfaces that might be a bit imperfect from a real-world perspective. Many times, the point isn't the literal text or the usability of the GUI, but just the idea of the thing that's important to the audience. Putting a flashing red LED on a tracker meant to be discreet is one such concession for the audience. This also applies perhaps to genre staples, like the amped-up explosions or magically effective martial arts. So, the simplest explanation for the visual sound wave is such. Something for the audience's benefit. Not necessarily literally seen inside the world itself in the same way. And even if it's not the same literal visual effect, the practical result is essentially the same. The cry only needs to reach the scout ship or star labs before it's relayed around the world into the stars by some form of faster-than-light communication. And of course, like so much of these films, that's the surface-level interpretation. But then you can always dig deeper, one more layer down, and discuss the symbolic interpretation.
4: Zack's version of all the DC movies has a lot of subtext. and people are starting to realize that but i feel like they thought some of these things look like a video game it must be this Mm -hmm. and not to really think that there was a deeper meaning or there was other intentions behind it
0: and there the mechanics of the sound wave matter much less than its implications as we said before superman is the symbolic dying savior and of course in our culture The most archetypical of these is the crucifixion of Christ. Snyder has made such allusions explicit again and again, and the visual indicators aren't exactly subtle. Between being pierced by a spear, the crosses at Golgotha, descent from the cross, and the Pieta, it's intentionally hard to miss because that's the message. And here we get one more reinforcement of the parallel in how Superman's death cry is suddenly felt around the world and has a similar impact. Specifically, let's consider this passage as read by Johnny Cash.
3: And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded
0: up his spirit.
3: Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and
0: the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So, if we scan through the scripture, we can see an almost one-for-one with our story. So both Christ and Clark cry out at the moment of death, and in both cases, heaven opens up. The following clips explain the significance
2: of the temple and the veil. What was the significance of the temple veil being torn in two when Jesus died? During the lifetime of Jesus, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religious life. Hebrews 9 1 9 tells us that in the temple, a veil separated the Holy of Holies, the earthly dwelling place of God's presence, from the rest of the temple where men dwelt. This signified that man was separated from God by sin. Only the high priest was permitted to pass beyond this veil. What significance does this torn veil have for us today? Above all, the tearing of the veil at the moment of Jesus' death dramatically symbolized that his sacrifice, the shedding, of his own blood was a sufficient atonement for sins. It signified that now the only way into the Holy of Holies was open for all people, for all time, both Jew and Gentile. When Jesus died, the veil was torn. Jesus Christ, through his death, has removed the barriers between God and man, and now we may approach him with confidence and boldness.
0: In brief, it represents heavenly access, and before the end of BVS, Superman and the scout ship was seemingly our sole access to and first contact with extraterrestrial life. The heavenly world of cosmic intelligent entities had been sealed up by the first age of heroes, hidden behind the veil. But Superman's death tears the veil apart, and suddenly humanity has direct access to the stars. As Lex communing with Steppenwolf shows, and now unveiled, it is open season on the Earth. Of course, that's a much more sinister outlook than the Christian account, but the parallels need not be perfect to have the same mythological resonance. So continuing with the scripture, we have the earthquake and then the rocks split, and in the trailer we're shown the path of Doomsday's destruction, which looks much like the aftermath of an earthquake. The trailer follows up with the Amazonian structure falling into the sea as if a rocky cliff has split, and the open graves and the walking saints might be read in different ways. It could be the mother boxes opening up and awakening, or it could be the return of hidden heroes who had gone to sleep after the first age. The Amazons and their representative, the Atlanteans and their representative, and the tribes of men and so on. So in some, the visual effect is a way to wordlessly connect the events directly for the audience. In the scripture, the words on the page just do that work directly by saying one event caused the other. But in the film, this is better communicated unsaid and simply seen. But that degree of subtlety is a matter of discretion. In the same way Super Man's death cry is the birth of the superhero in this universe, his first birth cry as a baby in Man of Steel is perhaps the birth of this universe. And there, we had a similar call and response, implied but less explicitly communicated the infant Kalel cries and nature calls out almost in response, certainly as symbolic precedent, but perhaps literal precedent too, if you want to argue some sort of, I don't know, psychic ability for Kal's cry in one place to affect some distant thing elsewhere as a result. Um, I don't put too much stock in that, but you could go there. Um, which isn't to say that the filmmakers are thoughtless or haphazard about the science in these films. So true to the title of the show, we're always going to find a way back to Man of Steel. And so let me make my pitch now for how much of the scope of the sci-fi we see in Justice League can be seen or suggested in Man of Steel. That that first film in the franchise was so carefully conceived and kept open that it even offered up these possibilities. That journey of discovery from Man of Steel through BVS and beyond. And one of the ways to do that is to highlight hints of what we're seeing now as having seeds in Man of Steel. So I'm going to talk about precursors, alien artifacts, world domination, and heroes. So in Justice League, one of the most anticipated points of interest is the expanded history lesson, a story from before the story, when Euxus first came to conquer Earth only to be driven back by an alliance of the gods of old, the tribes of man, the Atlanteans, the Amazons, and so so on, the heroes. Well, such a story would feel far afield in ordinary science fiction, but in Man of Steel actually sets precedent for it all. Let's start with the idea of an ancient battle to begin with. Already, that's a retcon of real history as we know it, and that should shatter the reality of our world if we deem history reliable and are aggrieved by all the anachronisms in the history lesson. The Man of Steel opens the door for an ancient unknown history with its implementation of the scout ship. The Thing is 20,000 years old, and it represents a previous visitation to the Earth lost to time and before history. It's a reminder that while we stand atop the shoulders of giants with our modern science, in looking backwards, our vision is filled with blind spots and gaps in knowledge. In our real world, we have lost civilizations, lost technologies, and archaeological mysteries yet unanswered. The scout ship's ancient landing kind of keeps all those possibilities in mind, and consider how considered that is. First contact with Kryptonians being 20 millennia into the past is definitely not the standard superman story but the very idea says hey there's this whole history to the world that we don't know and imagine what might be so when the other dc films follow suit with other hidden histories worlds peoples and gods it slots in to what man of steel had already set something not to be taken for granted for such a hard sci-fi story man of steel sets a similar precedent with the idea of critical artifacts justice league gives us the mother boxes and man of steel sets the stage with the kryptonian codex while the registry of citizens is mere data capable of being copied or distributed, its embodiment in an artifact, or bonded to Cal, revives a more mythological sensibility of a singular thing. It shows how a society may still make that choice over free or universal access to that information, which primes us to intuit the mother boxes as rare and special, despite living in a society where technology tends to be fungible and mass-produced. And again, these are thoughtful innovations to the mythos, as Man of Steel introduces us to the Codex, and typically, mother boxes aren't all that special in DC tradition. Man of Steel also subtly implies the possibility of other alien conquerors besides the obvious demonstration by Zod and his cohort directly. As I've mentioned many times in the past, Jor-El is unsurprised at finding other intelligent life in the universe, suggesting that humanity is not first contact for Krypton. Additionally, that prequel comic explicitly mentions the Thanagarians. But we get additional hints through the nature of Zod's station and his search. While Snyder's apocrypha differs, if you take the film at face value, it says that General Zod is Krypton's foremost military leader, which is to say that Zod is not just a general of some part of Krypton, but of all of Krypton. Well, rhetorically, if the entire planet is unified under the same singular military body, who or what is that military meant to fight? Additionally, if colonization is so easy, why did it fail? Why did Zod find only death? Why did his search for Cal take 33 years? One possible answer is other hostile aliens like Darkseid, motivating the need for a planetary military leader, or forcing the search of worlds outside Darkseid's domain, constraining how Zod could conduct his search. Maybe. Of course, I can imagine counterarguments, but at least Man of Steel doesn't foreclose the possibility of apocalypse as is. Man of Steel shows us a lot of sci-fi staples which will return in Justice League. Terraforming. Energy weapons liquid metal technology, power armor, drop ships, faster than light travel and communications, and time travel. And yes, that's also in Man of Steel, and no, I'm not going to explain it right now. That's an entire physics lecture all on its own. <laughs> but Man of Steel also shows us that heroism can come from many sources working together for the common good. Hashtag us <laughs> Superman works alongside the military, scientists, and reporters who are all just as brave during the BZE and we're going to see that pattern repeat itself with the history lesson and with the league. And just as Jonathan's exhortations to Clark can be taken as applicable to all heroes, to you, to me, and all of us, well, I wouldn't be surprised if Cyborg's story is a concentrated journey of discovery similar to Superman's. We already see a visual parallel of that in their first flights, and speaking of that, I'm just going to briefly weigh in on those black tights. Intellectually, I love it. Subjectively, I like it. But I need a little more context to emotionally connect to it. You know, I love the larger Superman mythos, so while the black suit is an absolutely cool cool variant, that red and blue suit is what I want in the end. And there's an unextinguished nostalgia in me that hopes we still see those colors in this film. Maybe they'll preserve the shirt rip scene as is since Snyder was on set without a shot.
4: The way that Justice League is rendered is what Zack's original intention for the film is. In the past, there was supposed to be two other movies, and we didn't change anything to make this ending end. It's the way the movie was originally conceived to be be. Zack Snyder's Justice League is supposed to be the vision of what he intended for this movie. That's what, you know, I think everyone wants to see, and that's what we're going to see.
0: I don't need it. I don't expect or demand it, but it might be nice to see the return to the red and blue. Now, an interesting thing I've observed is how many critics come after the black suit out of context and as evidence of Snyder's ongoing misunderstanding of Superman under some illegitimate argument that this is Superman's final form, his preferred look, and the imposition of some sort of, let's say, goth fashion onto soups, right? (laughs) Well, Defenders will point out that the black suit has already appeared in Man of Steel inside that interrogation dream machine scene and as a staple of Kryptonian culture. And so this is a consistent in-story callback to that established canon. Defenders will then also go to the Death of Superman event in the comics, citing the suit's first appearance in Action Comics 689, our first full look in Superman Man of Steel 25, and then finally gracing the cover of Superman 81. The as, of course, a nod to that iconic recovery suit. And they go on to cite the suit's function in that story. As the name implies, it hastens the regeneration of Superman's weakened powers. But personally, I speculate that that doesn't apply in Justice League. As an aside, apart from any impact on his mind, it seems like Superman is stronger in his fight at Heroes Park than before. And at a minimum, he's certainly faster than he's ever been shown before. And let's just discuss the mechanics of that first, and then perhaps the symbolic resonance of that. So my headcanon likes to imagine that Superman's speed boost is partially due to being touched by the speed force when Barry assists in his resurrection. Not necessarily because of any kind of literal access or effect, which granted would also speed him up, but simply as instruction or inspiration by example as we've already seen in Man of Steel. Like, once you've seen what you can do with these powers, it's easier to just try it and do it yourself. This is what we saw with Zod, quickly picking up what Cal would demonstrate, be it focus heat vision, or flight. So perhaps it's possible that subconsciously experiencing Flash's speed allows Clark to pick that up as well. Now, beyond the mechanics, there are multiple symbolic parallels for greater powers after rebirth as well. The resurrected Christ demonstrated additional powers like passing through walls and teleportation, and so one might argue that Superman's greater powers is partly due to more fully embracing his Kryptonian side, symbolized by the black suit of his culture. A little like how Christ's new powers lean more into his divinity.
1: The black suit and modern Krypton, when he left, everyone was wearing black suit mostly. So it is sort of linked to his old world. I think it's a more direct relationship to his family. And it's in a lot of ways, the blue suit to me represents his kind of place on earth. The blue suit is his the suit of a hero, you know, the suit of, of his destiny, where like the black suit is more personal in a lot of ways, more about his family and his, you know, the one is an outward and one is inward. Let's put it this way. that. It was always my intention with the larger arc of the movies to realize that more completely, but um, I think you get a sense of it here, if that makes sense.
0: Outside of the Western tradition, it's common for resurrection to be followed by a power-up, that one is being reborn into something better, ascendant and enlightened, not just returning to how one was. Another tried example of the possibility of Superman's power up is maybe the debris that we see float around his fist in Flight 2.0 as it's come to be called. In Man of Steel the particulate are fine grains of dust, but here they are considerably more massive. Of course, Zod and Doomsday managed to float much more massive matter, so perhaps that's not the best measure, but maybe there's finer control. So while the motion in Man of Steel seems unconscious, here it seems maybe a little more controlled. Okay. Well, Clark is continuing to find his reason, sustained by the words of his father. Contrary to the critics claim that Jonathan was a cynical pessimist, the line that the trailer chooses to remind us of underlines Jonathan's deeply held hope and faith. And that isn't intended as some mushy spiritual platitude, but something concretely defined in a psychological sense. What hope is to the mind is a matter of motivation, the selection of something important during an uncertain time. It is costlier than its cheaper cousin optimism which just assumes the desired outcome. No hope is not knowing if it will be achieved, but highlighting the importance of moving towards it. It is not a virtue without risk. Whenever you hope for something, you have made something important while noticing it is something you lack. And that's why when a hope is unfulfilled, we are devastated and frustrated, and we find it harder to hope again. Accordingly, the risk rises. The more we move towards the goal, the more we invest, if it all falls apart unachieved in the end. And that's why no one says that hope is easy. Now, if that's the whole story under game theory, one might calculate risk nothing, lose nothing right? Well, that's where the function of faith enters the equation. Psychologically, faith is the belief in the ability to achieve one's hope despite the unknowns and uncertainties that there is an underlying competence and efficacy to enable or overcome. Applied to Jonathan, he passes on to Clark this incredible hope, that he'll find his reason, and he underscores its importance by saying it's something that he owes to himself and is worth a lifetime of searching. This, of course, sets up Clark for the risk of never knowing and falling into despair, but Jonathan has faith in Clark. He believed that Clark was capable, could, and would find his reason. And as said earlier, these words are not just for Clark, but all of us. Yes, it's an individual journey, but it's a journey of the ones that you bring with you. Your family, your connections, your community, us united. Clark carries Jonathan in his heart. His words still work on him today. The Knights of the Round Table were a brotherhood, a community of knights committed to the highest values and to one another as family. The Justice League share that same table of equals, commitment to the common good, and a sense of family chosen. In previous episodes, we've discussed how the League is the natural destination for the fulfillment of Superman's reason. Episode 43, The Beautiful Truth, proposed that once the concept of the superhero did not sit on Superman's shoulders alone, Superman would be more free to be who he was as an individual, and less symbol, saint, or figure. Your head. In episode 64, Commitment, the issues of individuality without community are illustrated and how commitment to a community takes one higher. It's ironic that it is in community that you find and express your individuality. But as a practical example, Zach's vision for this film would have sat raw, sealed, and shunned if it weren't for this community, which encouraged, empowered, enabled, and now His personal and specific take could be perfected, refined, and released for the entire world to see. Something that is such an expression of identity that it bears his name right up front. And being a part of this community, us united, seeing that is inspiring.
1: If you just have another man who is actively, genuinely pursuing the best version of his life in an authentic way, this is this is a true inspiration. This is a true
0: inspiration. So let's do our best to support this and one another in this final push.
4: A lot of artists are also very sensitive people. And I think that it makes it even harder for them when they're, you know, reading these things. And I, I just wish that the reviewers were a little bit more kind
0: so I'm rambling there was so much to enjoy in this sip this glimpse this trailer but that's the kind of thing these films let us do (laughs) I don't think you get just how giddy I am I get to do it it's a bliss I get to follow well I gotta wrap this up I'm pretty sure these end notes are longer than the actual trailer analysis but uh the possibility of topics are just endless they're practically endless for example Zach recently made a comment about adapting King Arthur on film. So, of course, I recommend checking out our Grail series. And I think a variety called Leto's Joker, the ghost of Christmas yet to be. So you can listen to our Christmas Carol episode on that. And if you want an analysis of Jonathan's lines, there's an episode on understanding Jonathan. Likewise, there's an episode on understanding Lex to look at his lines. And these older episodes largely hold up if you're looking for something to listen as Justice League approaches. So feel free to check them out and let me know if you have any comments or questions, but we are just days away.
4: I want to savor the moment of this has taken so much work and so much passion from everyone who made it, but from all the fans. And I'm not ready to like think about what's next because I want to enjoy, I think, enjoying this moment and savoring this moment. And I really hope that everyone likes what we did. You know, it was a labor of love. We care so much about these characters and about making sure that their stories are rich and whole and layered and to be able to show this to me in itself is enough that's where my head is right now
1: from my point of view you're in the exact moment exact spot for this story to be told for me it's more emotional because it's the heart of what we're looking at in that moment that's the pure place to be in that moment so yeah
0: can you believe it well enjoy this period where you feel like you can't wait how often do you get to feel this much anticipation be present. (laughs) All right. Talk to you later. You're the answer, son.
3: You and show you. Every day that your heart keeps beating. or something.